Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Tom O'Callaghan, a leading global advocate for online medical education. As founder and CEO of iHeed, his mission is to use innovative approaches to educate and support healthcare providers and believes the accessibility of online education modules can help address the global shortage in the healthcare workforce. Dr. O'Callaghan is also a practicing family doctor, a leading digital healthcare entrepreneur, and a regular contributor at events sponsored by the UN and WHO. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to talk to you again, Richie. Absolutely. And so we we actually chatted a number of years ago, but at that time, and and even since then, I've never really gotten the full story on what I'm about to ask you, which is what got you interested in medicine uh, in the first place, and and particularly primary care? Thanks, Rishi. So uh, my background is my dad was a family doctor in a small rural community in Cork in Ireland of about three or 4,000 people. And I suppose I grew up watching him as an old style community physician looking after a community over generations of people from young people up to their grandparents and I suppose looking after them holistically over many years and and got to see the value that was placed in that by his community and and by the individuals and the friendships he built up and I suppose the difference he was able to make in the world as a doctor and I think that really inspired me to follow I suppose in his tracks into medicine and then subsequently into family medicine and I then joined him in practice and had the good fortune to be in practice with him for many years and then became part of a, what you call in the US a wider physician group where we came together in a, a much more structured primary care center with on-site diagnostics and outreach services and teaching medical students and researching and providing that multidisciplinary kind of care team that now exists quite extensively in many parts of the world. So am I getting this right in the early days? Was it literally a practice of you and your father at one point, just early on? The funny story I always tell is that I'd go out to the waiting room and there'd be a big queue of patients waiting to see my dad and patient would go in to see him and they'd be laughing and joking and they'd be there for half an hour and I could hear them in the next room. And I'd be there like looking at the big waiting room full of patients, <laughs> trying to, you know, empty the waiting room, see the next patient and, and sort their problem. And he'd still be inside swapping jokes with the patients for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. But that was, I suppose, of a time. And that was the way medicine was practiced. And I suppose that's the way people built up trust and relationships with their family physicians. You know, and what was wonderful was to see him. For many years, I had patients would come to me and say, oh, your father helped my daughter get a job in nursing. Or, you know, I remember him coming out to my house at four o'clock in the morning in his dressing gown, you know, when my child was sick. I suppose that was the medicine of of a time. And I suppose when I travel the world as part of my work in IHEED, I get to meet family doctors and physicians all around the world. And it's very interesting to see the evolution of the care system in different parts of the world and how that often exists in, in many other countries. So I guess this is a striking kind of juxtaposition, because on the one hand, you have this man who's laughing it up in a patient room for 30 minutes with a lot of people obviously waiting to see him. And that's how a lot of people kind of imagine medicine was done in yesteryear. And then today, you know, I just in in the intro kind of talked about how you're a digital entrepreneur using online platforms and doing all this other kind of stuff. So like, what would your father say about these activities? Like, what was his take on this kind of approach? Yeah, I think he was quite progressive. You know, he was a bit of a medical leader in his own way, Uh, was quite involved in the development of postgraduate education in Ireland for family physicians and CME. And I think he always felt that coming together and cooperating and working together as a professional group was the way forward. 
and the multidisciplinary teams and working with other professionals really made a huge difference. So I think he'd be very proud of what has happened in Ireland and what's happened in the work we've done internationally. Uh, but I think he would have always felt that the future was going to change in, in family medicine. And I suppose the bit that heartens me is when I travel around the world and I see in many countries that primary care and particularly family medicine is evolving quite rapidly. And we're involved in the forefront of a lot of that change in developing residency programs in countries like Malaysia, where we're running the National Family Medicine Residency Program with the Irish College of General Practitioners, and in Saudi Arabia, where we've helped them scale by 800% the family medicine residency training in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, that ultimately looking after patients close to home at a lower cost by people whom they know and trust is the solution. And technology now has obviously further enabled that with you know, all of the wearables and trackables and the telemedicine approaches, which are very exciting in terms of the opportunity they provide to both scale um, our care delivery, but also to reduce cost and, and to make it more affordable. So walk me through then your first interest, like what, what first got you interested in medical education specifically? And was it meeting someone? Was it interacting with a group? Like what sparked that for you? I was always interested in, you know, I know you of old when we met in Stanford many years ago, and you were on that journey yourself with osmosis. But I think I probably came to a little bit later in life. I suppose it was teaching undergraduate medical students who used to come out and do a placement in primary care and in family medicine. And it was often the placement they valued most. It was the experience where they got out into the community, got to meet people, understand the interaction between psychological, the physical, the emotional, the social things that all go to make up someone's life and how they all interact. And meeting those medical students and being involved with them inspired me to do more. And I think my passion for family medicine and primary care I always felt that this is something that we do know that very many of the countries in which we operate, family medicine and primary care hasn't really scaled uh, the way hospital medicine has. And the opportunity to do that in a digital way and to support countries to build that capacity, I think was a very exciting opportunity. And I suppose that's what we've spent the last five or six years doing in different ways. So that brings me to IHEED and this project that has grown in so many interesting and different ways. You mentioned Saudi Arabia, Malaysia. So for those that may not be familiar, like how do you describe what IHE does and then how has it evolved over the years? So IHE is an online medical education organization. And in truth, it's a bit of a social enterprise or started as a social enterprise. And it really is around designing and developing, delivering postgraduate education programs and residency programs for doctors, nurses and other healthcare professionals in where we are now about 65 different countries around the world in partnership with leading medical universities. So I suppose you'd call us an online program management company is the technical term. So what we do is we design, develop and deliver the program in partnership with the university and the person gets, I suppose, the value of a qualification from a world leading university at a cost that it's affordable in a way that's accessible to them without having to leave the workplace. And many of these physicians and nurses are female and often don't want to travel abroad and the healthcare system which they're operating is under-resourced so they can't afford to have them leaving the healthcare system. Um, so they get to, I suppose, build their skills and their competencies. They get to interact with a global community of passionate medical educators who can share their experience and other fellow students who are going through a program. And they get to, I suppose, use that as a way of improving their ability to deliver care to their patients, also to perhaps get a promotion or change direction in their career. And we're finding more and more people now post-COVID or want to go into different areas of practice in leadership and public health and medical education or research, et cetera, and change the trajectory of their career. 
And then often it's around global mobility for people, giving them an opportunity perhaps to move to another country and take up a position. And obviously having a postgraduate qualification helps them to do that. So you kind of allude to this, but I'd like to learn a bit more. Are there certain subgroups or folks that this particularly appeals to? You mentioned like many may not be able to leave for various reasons. You know, the fact that you can do this maybe at a more flexible schedule. So what have you found in terms of creating a bit more equity in terms of who ends up in healthcare? Yeah, I suppose in truth, Richie, we're in the postgraduate space. So we're not dealing, I suppose, with undergraduate people who are entering medical school. We're dealing with people who've already been through a graduate education program, and then they're looking at where they're going next with their careers. So I suppose we're really focused on helping them on their postgraduate journey or the residency journey. And it tends to be predominantly a mixture of students, right? About a third of our students are from Europe, which more and more students are studying online closer to home, as you know. About a third of our students are in the Middle East, and about a third of our students are in, in Asia and the rest of the world, across about 65 countries. The breakdown of our students, I would say about 80% of our students are doctors right now. And then the rest is made up of pharmacists, nurses, and other ancillary healthcare professionals who may want to take, say, for example, a master's program in diabetes care or professional diploma in women's health or pediatrics. So there are specialist qualifications in their area of expertise, or they're more broad kind of master's qualifications, which allow them to. I suppose, transition their career into areas like public health, medical education, research, healthcare leadership, et cetera. So given this experience, like what have you uh, noticed are some ways in which this ed tech has improved medical education? Like, What have you cited as kind of bullet points or highlights along the way? Yeah. So I suppose the, the first one would be that your online experience can be just as good and often better than your face-to-face experience. So what we find is one of the really secret ingredients is the international perspective. You and I are, I suppose, medical colleagues and you're in the US, I'm in Ireland sharing this experience. But if you add 50 people to the conversation or 30 people in an online class who are spread across 65 different countries and people can share their experience and share their knowledge of what works in their environment. And that is, I think, really the secret sauce. I think the other thing is the ability nowadays to develop skills online and to build competencies online is something that we've really focused on and be able to track those competencies in a real-time way is really important. So we've been able to measure that and improve people's clinical skills and competencies online. And I think that allows you to really upskill people in a way perhaps that wasn't done in the past. So that's one thing. I think the second thing is that medical regulators all around the world have changed their I suppose, perception of online education. So for example, we would have found when we went to the Middle East, particularly that they would have said, oh, you know, any program will have to be delivered face-to-face, perhaps 10 or 20% online. They went from that to becoming the most global advocates for online education and wanting to move all their programs online. And as you know, during the pandemic, that accelerated for everybody because everything moved online. So it's really now, I suppose, the accepted gold standards And in terms of educational outcomes, one of the things we've really focused on is really supporting our students in every level of the journey with us. And our net promoter scores are up in the 80s and 90s for all our programs and our student satisfaction rates are in the high 90s. So we're doing something right in terms of the student experience. And I think that's the critical thing. And then the flexibility and being able to to suit the flexibility of people's lives And cost is a huge issue. So all of those things, it's bringing all of those things. And then the last thing I think is the flexibility in terms of the start date for a program. 
So I suppose traditional university programs would start one at the beginning of a semester, whereas we've rolling intakes quarterly or even more frequently, six or eight times a year to allow students to take a program when it suits them rather than particularly turning it on its head and saying, look, this is what we offer as a university at a time that suits us. So it suit the student at all times, if at all possible. And then what about patient outcomes? You know, have you seen compelling data that shows that doing this online approach actually leads to not just more happy students and, and students that can access the education, but all the way down to actually patients getting better care? Yeah, and I, I know this is something that we've advocated in IHEAP for a long time of, you know, bringing together that research data. And I know it's something you're quite passionate about as well. And I think, I suppose, through the lens of COVID, we've really seen a rapid acceleration in the amount of research done in this space and the data uh, that's coming through to back that up. So without getting into individual studies, there's been a significant increase in the amount of research data that shows that online medical education can have a direct impact on patient care and building competencies and building skills within the health workforce. I think what we focus on a lot in terms of our educational programs is real life improvement of your organization. So give you an example, if somebody was doing a master's program, for example, with us in diabetes care, for example, what we would ask them is to focus on a quality improvement initiative within their clinic, within their practice, within their organization, and measure that over a six month period as part of their education in the master's program. So at the end of it, they would have a real measurable clinical improvement outcome to their practice. And I think people really value that and their organization values it. And clearly it's what we're all about, right? We have to be about improving patients' lives and communities' lives because that's what I suppose motivated all of us to do this work. Totally. And, and right now, you know, one of the big issues is the global shortage in uh, health workers. And so do you mind just kind of extending that thought to how this can help effectively raise the line, which is what this entire podcast was founded on is, is the idea of increasing healthcare capacity. And so just walk me through how that's working through IHEAT. Yeah. So I think, you know, if you think about it, it's a big global challenge, right? And it's an even bigger global challenge. If you think about it, we're trying to fill a bucket of 7.5 million global health worker shortage, which is going to accelerate to 12.5 on the next 10 or 15 years. And I was looking at your recent uh, published data from Elsevier on them, um, the future proofing the health system study. And we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing, you know, 30 to 50% of health workers looking to change their career to leave the health workforce. So we're in a real crisis and it's people obviously stressed. There's burnout. We're hearing it from all the primary care and, and organizations we're working with and people feel undervalued and people are looking for other options. So I think we have a mammoth task on our hands. Uh, the good news is there's a lot of really good people and good organizations like yourselves and ourselves focused on this. And I think we now have the tools and the technologies and the adoption of them and the acceptance by medical regulators that they can make a real difference. I think the softer end of it is in areas like postgraduate medical education and residency education. I think it's more challenging when you get into undergraduate medical education, where you're asking, I suppose, regulators to really have a huge mind shift. And I know many of the people we would both have interacted with would have a vision of moving the whole undergraduate a curriculum online and shortening the duration of the medical undergraduate program. And I think some of that change will come slowly. I think there will be a big move to task shifting to broader health workers, increasing healthcare assistance, 
increasing the number of nurses, which equally is a challenge and accelerating the paths to careers for nurses and other healthcare professionals. And I think we have to welcome that. I suppose in my experience over the years, nurses are fantastic and, and can do 10 times the amount of work a doctor can do at, at a fraction of the cost and in, often in a much more empathic and, and human way. So I think if we can support all of those initiatives, I'd be quite optimistic that over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, we're going to make a big impact on that number. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about how COVID has affected both IHEED and, and kind of what you've seen overall in this model of online education. What has changed in your, in your mind? Yeah, I think the big thing, Richie, is what I said earlier is it's just become the accepted norm and in fact been advocated for by everybody. And I think there's no going back, which is the great thing. And I think obviously the evolution of the technologies and the tools is accelerated even further, which is fantastic. So we're doing things now that we probably wouldn't have thought we were able to do 12 months, two years ago, which is very exciting. And I think the funding is there, which is exciting to actually drive on and have the impact we all want to have. I mean, I think when you look at the countries that really have very poor infrastructure in the developing world, that is a real challenge. I had the good fortune on many times to be down in Africa and to meet various healthcare ministries and governments. And, and I mean, they have a real challenge around primary care and community-based care. And obviously technologies offer the opportunity to accelerate that. But I also think we need more medical education programs specifically developed to help build the skills in medical education in these countries. And that's one of the areas I'm quite passionate about. We have built a really exciting medical education master's program with the University of Warwick. And I'm really excited that we're putting a large number of very young and enthusiastic and driven people through that program who really want to go out and have an impact. And they're across very many countries. So I think that they're going to drive that innovation, which is really exciting. That's awesome. Yeah, the idea of, of medical education being taught more formally makes a lot of sense, especially given the instrumental role it plays in our overall economy, in the global economy. Do you mind teaching us something. You know, I, I, I know that at Osmosis, we love to fill knowledge gaps, bust any myths that may be out there. In your experience, like what are some areas where you feel like folks may not know something that, that they ought to know? And it could be on any range of topics. So feel free to choose what you like. Yeah, thanks, Richie. I mean, I think I'd bring it back to primary care again and to family medicine, because when I go, I'll give you two examples. If you go to maybe North America or the US, you know, where perhaps the healthcare system is more hospital centric and more care is delivered and it's at a hospital level rather than in a community care. And say a country like Ireland, where 95% of illness is dealt within the community by a family physician, you know, only one of every 10 consultations is a referral. And then you go to other countries, India was, is an example that springs to mind, which had a very good evolved and developed primary care system but because of rapid privatization is now moving towards a very hospital-centric care system where people end up getting unnecessary procedures or unnecessary investigations, over-investigation, I suppose, because of it being driven by a private consumer model. I think we need to get back to basics. And I think thinking about really looking at the patient holistically and in the community and saying, what can we do that really makes a difference in preventative care in the community at a low cost that makes a real difference in patients' lives over the lifetime of this individual. And I think that's where I believe the future for medicine is. And I believe the technology has really going to transform that. Telemedicine already has, and trackables and wearables and remote monitoring has, and patient empowerment. 
and patients taking responsibility for their own care. So I think if I was to say where you'd love to see it go, that's where you'd love to see it go. I think you worry that economic forces often drive it in the other direction, particularly private corporatization. But I think if I was to say the experience that I've had in my life has been to really understand the value of really good community-based care. And often people ask me at a personal level, what's important for my healthcare? And I say, probably the most important thing in your life is to have a good family doctor and somebody who you know and trust and you respect and you go to them when you need good counsel. And I think if you have one of them, you're far more likely to have a better healthcare outcome to every illness you have in your life. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and nowadays, I mean, that also spans mental health and, and general wellness as well, you know, just making sure that someone's on your side. So yeah, I totally appreciate that advice. Now, I know you have a lot of mentees in, in your life uh, that you advise and, and help out in various ways. Uh, in our audience, we have a lot of students, a lot of early career health professionals. What advice could you offer them in terms of meeting the challenges of this moment? You know, uh, they're coming out at a very unique time with COVID-19 and they may be looking at your career and just inquiring as to how they may be able to do something maybe analogous in some way to what you've been able to do. So what would you tell them? Yeah, so I think I'm really inspired by the young medical students and particularly the young doctors I meet and nurses and other healthcare professionals I meet around the world. You know, their passion and their motivation to make a real difference in the world, I think, is really, really important and really critical right now at this, I suppose, really challenging time for the world, both with, I suppose, climate change um, and economically and sustainability. So what I would say to a lot of young people is really, A, believe in yourself and believe in what you want to do with your life and be brave and don't be afraid to make mistakes. You know, I think probably when my dad died, I what you call it, found his old doctor's bag and in the bottom of it, underneath all his stethoscope and all his stuff, he had a little note and on the note it said, when we're old enough to know that we know nothing, it's then that we know something. So, and I think it always struck with me, you know, that he had this in his own bag, obviously for very many years. But I think if I would say to young people, don't be afraid to make mistakes, know that ultimately it's in the making mistakes that you really get to, to learn and know about life and follow your heart. And if you can make a difference in other people's lives, and if, if you can touch other people's lives, that will reward you more than anything else uh, financially or otherwise. He sounds like a very humble, humble man, very wise man. That's a, that's a wonderful piece of advice and a great way to end. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, great to talk to you and keep up the good work. I appreciate that. I'm Risha Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>